You know, the last few weeks we've been on a series on the parables, and this is the third installment, third and final installment of that series. And uh, we've been looking at Jesus as the consummate teacher and his method of connecting with people uh, primarily has, was through stories, which was parables. A parable is just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so we've been going through the last three weeks. The first week we looked at the, the parable of the seed the mustard seed, and how God could take something that's small and make it great. And then we went to the second installment, and we looked at uh, the the two debtors, and we talked about forgiveness. And so this week, we'll be talking about something slightly different. We're going to look more deeply at highlighting the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, as they're noted in the parables, are synonymous terms. They're one and the same. In fact, let me define the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven for you. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary says this. The kingdom of heaven is the sovereign rule of God initiated by Christ's earthly ministry and consummated when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Let me put it in layman's terms. The kingdom of heaven is the realm where Jesus Christ reigns as king and God's authority is supreme. The kingdom exists here and now in part in us and in our lives and in the hearts of all those that follow Christ, but as well as in perfection and in the fullness in the future. Before we can continue with describing and unearthing our understanding of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, there's something that I need to walk us through today. And that is the work of grace, which is the title of my message. See, the kingdom of God and the work of grace are interrelated. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the kingdom of God without the work of grace. And without the work of grace, you can't have the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But to give you a basis of understanding, I want to walk you through the difference between grace and mercy. They're not the same thing. Grace and mercy are two different things. And because we're talking about the work of grace, let me define what grace is and also what mercy is. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. And mercy is not giving you what you do. Is that clear? God gives us what we don't deserve and he doesn't give us what we do deserve. That's grace and mercy. So we're going to look at the work of grace, how God gives us what we don't deserve. And I'm going to ground my teaching today, my talk, in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. In this parable, we're talking about the workers in the vineyard. 
And here we find Jesus schooling Peter and the rest of the disciples on how saving grace works in the kingdom. This whole parable is hinged upon one question from Peter. One question. And it's found in Matthew 19, 27. And this is what Peter says. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? This is what Peter says. Let me give you context of what was happening when he asked that question. Jesus had just responded to a rich young man who had came to, to him and asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? This is the rich young man approaching Jesus and his disciples were present and he asked Jesus, what must I do to achieve eternal life. And you know the story, those of you that don't know, he went, Jesus responded and said, you must love the poor and give alms. And the young man said, I do all those things. What else do I have to do? So after he went through several stages of things that the young man was already doing, Jesus said, in order for you to receive eternal life, you must sell all your possessions and follow me. And the young man, because he was so wealthy, walked away disappointed. It was on the heels of that conversation that Peter then says, Hey, Jesus, I've given up everything. We've given up everything, talking about the disciples, to follow you. What's in it for me? And rather than Jesus ask the question directly, he takes them into a vineyard and shares this parable. The parable is found in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read the whole parable. So walk with me. Starting at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again at noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing there all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go, in my go work in my, in, in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the all the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired, for, hired about five, five in the afternoon came and each received the denarius. So those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received the denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us. You have 
we who have bore the, the, the burden of work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, am I not, am I not being unfair to you, friend? Did you agree? Didn't you agree to work for one Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because, of, because I'm generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. My first point in this message, and there will be three of them, coming right out of this uh, parable. My first point is that grace pursues. Grace pursues. We see that in verse 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed to pay, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So it's, we see here that the landowner went out himself to hire the workers for his vineyard. I find it interesting that when it comes to the imagery of God that Jesus is sharing with his disciples here, that he's describing himself as a landowner. And this mindset was really clear to, the, to, to his disciples because the cultural mindset of the Hebrews understood the context of what land and landowners represented. You see, a vineyard in historical context to the Hebrew of the day, the vineyard represented the people of God. The prophets prophesied that way. Whenever the prophets raised a concern or raised a, a prophetic word about a vineyard, they were always talking about that God's people are the vineyard of God. And so you have a vineyard that Jesus takes them and walks them into. And let me take you to a vineyard. Here's a vineyard. Jesus walks them into this vineyard. And he starts to describe this story that I just read to you. And he says, I'm the one who goes out and chooses who I want to work in my vineyard. Just like the landowner in the story. I think this type of imagery is key to place the context for Peter of who God is and his nature. God is in, pursu in pursuit of who he sees fit and who he desires to work in his kingdom. He will, you will never out-pursue God because he started the pursuit first. He pursued you before you ever desired to pursue him. I know this experientially. You know this experientially. Before we were of the mindset that we needed to come to God, who came to you first? He did. He pursued you. He sought you out. For me, it was God removing one card of this house of cards that represented my life when I was 19 years old. He just pulled one card 
one card, which was self-righteousness. He pulled one card of self-righteousness out, and everything about me came crumbling down. And when that happened, all I had to do was start asking the big questions. Okay, if that's not who I am, then who the heck am I? Who is God? Why on earth am I here? What's the meaning of life? That's exactly where God needed me to be. For him to then step in and said, you want answers? I got answers. And he gave me the answer to life. And it's never been the same since. I've been serving the Lord now 30 years. 30 years of pursuing God after he started his pursuit of me. And you know what? God still pursues me. And there's times where I'm chasing him and sometimes I don't know where he is. You ever felt like that? But that's just like God. God loves to be chased. It's like a, a son and, 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 and his father when they're playing hide and seek and, and you're running around and you're hiding behind a tree or you're hiding in the closet. This chase is a love affair that takes place. And now that you're in this love affair, you need to allow God to continue to pursue you. And when he does, you pursue him right back. Romans 5 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Peter had to come to an understanding that it is God's grace that pursues us. We don't pursue him. God's grace pursues us. My second point is that grace confounds. Grace confounds. Confound is a word that we don't normally use in our everyday language. But I thought that the meaning of it highlighted or helped us to understand this parable a little bit more. Let me give you the definition of, of confound. It means to cause surprise or confusion in someone, especially by acting against their expectations. This is key. I want you to underline that, that part, especially when acting against someone's expectations. When God steps in, he works against all your expectations and is confounding. And we see this in this parable quite clearly. The grace of the, of the landowner confounded the workers who thought they were entitled to more than they agreed to. You following me? The scripture goes on to say that the landowner hired workers from the marketplace in the third hour, which is 9 a.m., in the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m., and in the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. He hires them in waves for some reason, which the scripture gives no clear indication except to make the point. I take you to verse 9. The workers who were hired about 5 in the afternoon came and each received a Daenerys. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a Daenerys. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. 
These who were hired last only worked one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They're mad. Wouldn't you be mad? You'd be mad. Truth be told, I'd be mad. But let me tell you what this parable isn't about. This parable is not about best work practices. This parable is not about peace in the workplace or HR problems. See, some of you HR people would think, well, if they didn't disclose their salary, they wouldn't, have a be, they wouldn't be in a problem. If the first workers would have kept their mouth shut or the last workers wouldn't have known what the first workers got, there wouldn't be a problem. See, but this, we're not talking about HR problems here. Right? We're not even talking about being grateful. Being grateful is important, and, but this is not the focus of this, of this parable. This is not why Jesus shared this parable. The workers who were hired first, the 9 a.m. group, agreed to work for one denarius, did they not? Which would have been the normal amount's day's work for a soldier or laborer. Let me give you some context. A denarius in today's currency is $3.64. Right? And you're saying, wow, that's pretty bad. Let me show you something historically. In 1945, you know what, or 1940, during the World War II, you know what the going rate of a day's labor was? Less than $3.64. So over 2,000 years ago, they were getting paid more than they were getting paid during World War II. So that's really, really surprising. So a day's wages back then was a lot of money. And so those that worked first received the same as those that came in later. And that's why they were ticked off. They were upset. At 9 a.m., the folks knew the terms of the agreement. And they felt the landowner was fair, didn't they not? They wouldn't have started working if they didn't think he was fair. Yet, they see the 5, a, 5 p.m. group get the same thing, and they think, hey, we're going to win big. Maybe getting double or triple what they had agreed to. But that's not what happened. When it came time to receive pay, they got the, the same Daenerys, and they lost it. They lost their minds. We're going to see a few things that happen when you feel entitled. Remember again that this parable was birthed when Peter asked, what's in it for me? This whole parable was based on response of what Peter asked. So Jesus is dealing with grace, but he says, I'm going to deal with your issue of entitlement. I'm going to deal with your issue of entitlement. Entitlement is a mindset of having a right to something or thinking that you have a right to something. You think little of God's righteousness and more of your own. There's two things that mess us up when we're entitled. 
I go to verse 11. They began to grumble against the landowner. All of a sudden, the landowner was no longer just. They started out okay with him, but as soon as the landowner was gracious, they said, oh, that's not, he's not just. They had a problem with God's attribute. I love the way I heard it put. The workers are not objecting to justice, but to generosity. They weren't objecting to God not being just. They were objecting to his generosity. The landowner was just. He paid them what he agreed to. They were simply bothered by the fact that he was generous to those that came late. We must guard ourselves from this perspective of entitlement. Thinking that we have a right to dictate how God works in our lives or when he blesses us. And then when God doesn't show up the way we thought he would or the way we think he should, we grow bitter and angry to God. Verse 12, those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have bore the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Watch their attitude. They thought simply because they worked hard and did what was right, they deserved more. And began to boast in their own works. This reminds me of the prodigal son story. The brother that stayed home. What did he tell his father? Dad, I stayed home with you. I served. I did everything that you wanted me to. And yet when this loser shows up, you celebrate him. What about my party? What's in it for me? Same attitude. Same attitude happening here. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful to not allow self-righteousness and entitlement to seep in to think that we can earn a spot in God. We cannot earn a spot in God. In 2014, I, I, I graduated with my master's degree. And leading up to my master's degree, I was teaching at a university. But in order to continue teaching, I needed to get my master's degree. So I started my master's degree to continue teaching. Because my goal was to become a professor at a university full time. So this was my goal. I wanted to be a professor full time and be a pastor part time. That was my goal. So I went to college with that mindset. I graduated with a 4.0 average for my master's degree. I graduated believing that God was going to open doors in that direction. You know what? Didn't happen. 200 rejection letters later, I'm right here, right in front of you. I was ticked off. I looked at God and I said, God, Why is this not happening? You gave me success. I worked hard, and I'm seeing other people that didn't do as good as I did. 
achieve what they, what they set out to achieve, and yet what I want to do, you're not letting me get to. What's the problem? What's in it for me? You think I had an entitlement issue? I did. God needed to deal with this. And God needs to deal with some of the stuff that you're carrying. I love what C.S. Lewis says. In order for pride to exist, there must be a comparison with what we would deem an inferior other. Basically, let me put it in my story's context. When I was angry with God, I was putting myself above other people. Say, I worked hard. I, I serve you. God, I'm a child of God. I'm your son. Don't I deserve this? Well, what about everybody else? Don't they deserve not when I'm in that mindset. Not when you're entitled. Not when you think that you deserve more than what God has already given you. When you're stuck there, you, you can't even think of other people. Because it's so wrapped up in yourself. And I want to apologize to all, all of you that have experienced somebody that self-righteous, that spoke down to you or looked down to you or made you feel less than because of them. That's not God's heart. God is not a respecter of persons. And they, nobody is better than somebody else. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for everybody. He died for those that have degrees and those that don't have degrees. He died for the well and he died for the sick. He died for the athlete and he died for those that are not so athletic. He died for everybody. The kingdom of God is not earned by human merit. But it's given by grace. So that grace confounds us. It disturbs us because our merit-based system, the way we think, it doesn't flow with what God thinks. And if you think that we don't live in a merit-based system of, of, you know, thinking that we're entitled. Just yesterday, my wife told me this story. Really bizarre. We have a bird feeder outside of our window in our kitchen. And we feed the birds. We like seeing the birds. The, we feed the birds. Right? But inadvertently, the squirrels come. And no matter how hard you try, what contraption you try to build, or what guard you try to put on the bird feeder, they always find a way. Always. They're very persistent. And so, yesterday, the bird seed ran out. And you know what the squirrel did? He went right up to our kitchen window, and he's knocking on the window. He was knocking on the window. He felt entitled. He felt entitled. Hey, you forget something? A squirrel. Entitled squirrel. We entitled the squirrel. 
Now let me tell you, if the squirrel gets entitled, you don't think you get entitled? We all carry entitlement. But this is exactly what Jesus was dealing with. The sense of entitlement. So God pursues you through his grace. His grace pursues and his grace confounds. My last point is grace qualifies. But he answered, this is verse 13, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Daenerys? Take your pay and go. I want to give you, I want to give the one who was hired last the same I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? This is God. Don't I have a right to do whatever I want in my kingdom? And you're telling me how I need to run things? Or are you envious because I'm being generous? So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He uses this term, friend, because even though the workers had the wrong entitlement mindset or perspective, he was still tender to them. Jesus essentially reminds the bitter worker, aren't I the owner of the vineyard? At this point, the disciples understood where Jesus was going. And they encountered the understanding of grace. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. It doesn't matter whether you were counted as the black sheep of the family, whether you got degrees on your walls or, or you don't, how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how big a wallet you have or how many cars you have or how big your house is. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's what the kingdom of God is telling us. <laughs> Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not for yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I close with this story. It's by a, an author named Tim, Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm going to call him Timothy. He's my friend today. And he wrote this book with a rather lengthy title, Proof Finding Freedom Through Intoxicating Joy of Irresistible Grace. Just the title alone made me not want to read it. But there was this story that he told in this book of his middle daughter. And it touches my heart because I'm, a, I'm an adoptive father. My daughter's an adoptive child. And she's fully aware of it. And his middle daughter, this man Timothy, this author from this book... And his family adopted this daughter who was in the middle of his family, uh, family group. And this daughter was eight years old. And what came to be known to him was that there was a family that had her adopted pri prior to his adopt adopting her. And all well-intentioned, that family tried the best to make it work, but it didn't work. And so they dissolved the adoption and she went back into the system. 
And Timothy and his household adopted her. And they found out in this young, young girl's history that whenever this other family that had her adopted initially would go on vacation to Disney World, which they did every year, they would leave the adoptive daughter at a friend's house and they would go with their family to Disney World. This went on for a few years. And so as soon as Timothy found out that this was going on or this had happened and this was in this young girl's past, he said, I'm, I'm putting an end to that. We're going to Disney World. Honorable, right? Months leading up to this trip to Disney World, this little girl starts acting out horribly, cursing, stealing, you know, speaking ill to her parents, speaking ill to the siblings, just terrible, terrible behavior, stealing food, hiding food under her bed, all kinds of bad behaviors. A few days before this trip was supposed to happen, the father, this man Timothy, grabs his daughter and puts her on his lap to discuss her behavior. And she immediately says, I know what you're going to say. I'm not going to Disney World. And this man, Timothy, put two and two together. He now understood why she was misbehaving. See, this little girl, no matter whether she was good or bad before, was never taken to Disney World. So why even have my hopes up for something that's never going to happen? I might as well be bad. But this father looked at his daughter and said, are you part of this family? And her tears Fill eyes. She responded. She said, yes. We're going to Disney World. So they're driving to Disney World in Florida. And in their trip, at every hotel stop that they stayed and every rest stop, this girl's behavior just spiraled out of control. It was getting worse and worse. All up until the day that they walked through those Gates that open into Disney World. After a long day of long lines and rides and expensive food, those that have been there know, right? They're at the hotel room, and a completely different girl emerged. She was exhausted from all the excitement. She was quiet and pensive and even a little weepy. And when the parents came over, Tim and his wife came to this little girl. They said, honey, how was your first day at Disney World? And this is what she said. Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. You don't get to go to heaven because you're good. You don't get to get to where God wants you to be because you, the things you could accomplish. You get to be there because you're his. His. 
You belong in God because you belong to him. Because of the sacrifice that he made. Because his grace pursued you. His grace confounds you. And his grace qualifies you. His grace qualifies you to be in his presence. If you're here today and you've struggled with feeling that qualification because you think you're so bad, you've done things so wrong, you've made so many mistakes, let me tell you, there's no mistake that's too big, no problem that exists that God can say, I'm stepping in. And I want to fix it for you. 